You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. So we've been, as most of you know, we've been working our way through John's Gospel. And uh, um, this is message number 13 in chapter 1 of John. And you... You may be pleased to know this is the final one in, in the first chapter, <laughs> but uh, we've made it there, and uh, I suspect we'll speed up a little bit, uh, but there's been incredible depth in, uh, in this first chapter in particular, and there's a lot of things I feel are sort of foundational that we've looked at. One of the, one of the things I've, um, I've mentioned a number of times is that John, the author of our gospel, has been determined to show us without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is God. And he says near the end of the gospel, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You'll recall that I said that John's gospel was written in very simple, easy-to-read language, but contains very deep theology. Now as we come to the end of the first chapter, I'll briefly review some of the things we've looked at. We saw in the very first verses that Jesus Christ is the pre-existent creator of all things. He is the source of light and life. He is the unique Son of God. He shares the very essence of God. We've seen that he became flesh dwelling amongst us and bringing grace and truth to us. We've seen him called the Word, God, True Light, the Only Begotten, the Son of the Father, Lamb of God, Son of God, Rabbi, which means Teacher, Messiah, which is Anointed One, or Christ in the Greek language, Son of Joseph and King of Israel. That's 11 different titles for him just in the first chapter. Um, some commentators I've read have actually identified 21 different ways that Jesus is named and described in the first chapter of John. But in the the closing passage we see number 12, which incidentally is Jesus' favourite term for himself. So if we have a look at uh, chapter 1, verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. At first glance, the term Son of Man may seem to mean little more than that Jesus Christ was just a human being and nothing more. It's a claim Christians have made from the very beginning that Jesus Christ is a human being, an actual real man. It's one of the mysteries of the gospel that Jesus Christ is at one and the same time both fully divine and fully human. He's not half and half, he is completely both. 
that God himself chose to become a man and live, breathe, work, suffer and die as a man. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3.16, The mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. We'll see a little bit more about that mystery of godliness today as we look at Jesus' favourite name for himself, Son of Man. Now Jesus spoke Aramaic and in that language Son of Man is not a title at all. It's just a word, a common expression for a man, a member of the human race. And not specifically man as in gender, but man as in humanity. It's also true of almost every instance of the, the phrase Son of Man in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament. 107 times it's used in the Old Testament. And in nearly every instance, it's used to actually speak of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 2.1, for example, says, And he that is the Lord said to me, Son of Man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. In almost every instance, except for one significant exception, it's simply used to describe a human being, such as in Numbers 23, where it says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. The single exception to this usage is in Daniel chapter 7, and it turns out it's a particularly important one. But uh, we're trying to understand what Jesus meant when he called himself the son of man. We'll get to that a little bit later on. In the New Testament, the term is used 82 times and in all except for six of those instances, it's actually Jesus referring to himself in the third person as the Son of Man. Three of those six are used by other people in reference to Jesus. Two of them are in Revelation clearly describing Jesus and the final instance quotes the Messianic Psalm what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Quoting, uh, quoted in Hebrews, quoting from Psalm 844 also. We like to call Jesus Lord, God, Master, Saviour, King when we talk about him, when we pray to him. And that's fitting and right because he is all those things and much more. But Jesus, interestingly, preferred to call himself son of man. Why? What do you think he might be implying by that phrase? It may not be what you think. Matthew 16 tells us, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Jesus used the term almost every single time in the third person as if he was talking about someone else, but he was actually speaking of himself. And he used the term Son of Man to describe no less than three different aspects of his ministry and the work he was called to do. The first time he seems to have used it is here in our text today in John, right at the beginning of his ministry, shortly after he was baptised. And he said to, said to him, truly, truly, you'll recall, I say to you that you, see, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's an interesting reference to an unusual event in Jacob's life. 
It's a vision that's often called Jacob's Ladder, and we might touch on that a little bit later on. So the first time Jesus refers to himself, he does it by calling himself Son of Man. But when he called himself that, he meant something much, much more than just a mere undefined human being. So in the first group of passages that we'll look at, Jesus claims to possess an authority as the Son of Man that would be arrogant at the least, blasphemous at worst, if it weren't true. And that claim gets him in trouble right from the start. So you remember the story in Matthew where the, uh, the friends carried a man up onto the roof and dug through the roof and lowered him down on a pallet, I think the old versions say, on a mat, lowered him down amongst the crowd in front of Jesus. And it says in Matthew 9.2, Some people brought to Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, interesting, when he saw their faith, not the paralytic's faith, but when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees that were there at the time were enraged by this. This seems a fairly innocuous comment to us, really. But... um, but what a way to start your ministry by getting the leaders and the teachers and the religious people offside right at the very beginning. They were furious that Jesus, um, because Jesus in calling himself the Son of Man and forgiving sins was claiming to be God. To drive home his point that he was God, Jesus said that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And the man rose and went home. Later on, when the Pharisees told Jesus off because his disciples broke the Sabbath by plucking heads of grain when they were hungry, Jesus responded with, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Then Jesus rubbed their noses in it, so to speak, by proceeding to heal a man with a withered hand, not only on the Sabbath, but in their synagogue, and right in front of them. The Son of Man feared no man. And rightly so, for he is not only Lord of the Sabbath, he is Lord of all. The response of the Pharisees, though, was to conspire, to conspire against him, to work out how they might arrest him, try him, and kill him. These couple of verses, which are representative of plenty more in the Scriptures, show Jesus talking about himself as someone who has supreme authority, authority over sin, authority over sickness, even authority over the laws of God. The Jews were looking for a Messiah, a Saviour, someone who would overthrow the Romans and drive them out of the land, and someone who would rule over them in righteousness. But for a mere man, as they thought Jesus was, to make claims about being that saviour that they were waiting for was a bridge too far for them. They turned against him. They declared him to be a blasphemer and declared that he must die. Which leads us then to the next group of passages about the Son of Man. In Mark 8.31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Matthew 20:18, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus says, 
and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. Mark 10.45 For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 3.14 As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so the Son of Man must be lifted up. When you read through the Gospels you see Jesus doing good to people everywhere. Sometimes it's words of encouragement Sometimes it's healing sicknesses, sometimes it's casting out demons, sometimes it's even raising someone from the dead. But all of Jesus' good works only served as fuel for the hatred and the rejection of the Pharisees and culminated in his crucifixion. Jesus was under no illusions about what awaited him when he took on human flesh and came as a man. He knew he was coming to die. But his death would not be without meaning or without value, for he came to give his life as a ransom for many. The record shows that the only perfect man who ever lived in history did exactly that. He lived, he died, he was rejected, he was persecuted, he was hated, he was crucified. Isaiah 53.3 tells us he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But that's not the end of the story as we know. For the third group of passages that Jesus, where Jesus talks about himself talks about what happens to the Son of Man after his suffering and death. And they reveal that this Son of Man will exercise ultimate authority. For those who have put their trust in him, that will be a time of great joy. But for those who reject him, there will be terrifying consequences when he returns. In the parable of the weeds in the field, Jesus said, this is Matthew 13:37. if you're taking notes, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Mark 13 tells us, They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the end of the sky. And in Matthew 16:27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. These passages are the ones that actually connect us back to that little two-verse passage I mentioned earlier in Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 
tells us, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. The Jews were well aware of this passage in Daniel Two verses in the whole of the Old Testament that referred to the Son of Man in this way and yet it shaped their whole understanding of who the Son of Man would be. The Jews were well aware of the implications of Jesus calling himself the Son of Man. One of the things that enraged them is that when Jesus called himself the Son of Man was that he was claiming to be the same Son of Man who would be given dominion and glory and an everlasting kingdom. When Jesus was before the high priest on trial in Mark 14, you'll recall, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and he said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy, What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Jesus made a big claim about himself. There have been plenty of people down through history who have claimed to be the Messiah. Even in Jesus' own time there were people running around claiming to be the Messiah. Only one, however, has the runs on the board, so to speak, to back up his claim. And his claim, his completely truthful claim, led to his execution. We could add scripture after scripture to this study, each one building up our understanding of the Son of Man. We could add, for example, Hebrews 1.13, which speaks of Jesus when it says, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? We could add Hebrews 2. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present though, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We could go on. But let me add just one more, which incidentally is the only example of someone else talking about this Jesus as the Son of Man. And again, the use of that name, of that phrase, led to death. The end of Acts 6, the Pharisees had arrested Stephen, one of the first deacons who had been going around preaching Christ and healing the sick. Full of grace and power, the Bible says of Stephen. They demanded to, do, to know why he was doing these things. So Stephen launched into a sermon, which when you read it, is not much more than a recap of the history of the Jews. 
When he accused them of killing Jesus, though, the righteous one sent by God, they were enraged. So in Acts 7.54, we pick up the story. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. They were furious when Stephen accused them of killing the Messiah, for they could contain their rage no longer when Stephen told him he saw the Son of Man, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. They knew exactly what what Stephen was claiming about Jesus. He was claiming that Jesus Christ is God. Just as John claims in this Gospel, just as Jesus claimed for himself, he is God. Stephen died with his grace still intact, for his final words were, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And did you notice that almost offhand comment that they laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul? Even in his death, Stephen ministered with power. For this event was the first step on a journey of hatred and persecution of Christians by a young man named Saul, who would later become become Paul, would later get converted and become the greatest evangelist and theologian of the early church, probably of all time. So what about Jacob's ladder? Jesus told Nathanael and others that were present at the time, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. For four centuries before Christ, the heavens were like brass. There was no word from the Lord. There were no prophets. There were no miracles. There was no relief from the oppression of their enemies. Then after 400 years of silence, Jesus went to John the Baptist to get himself baptised and the heavens were opened, the scripture tells us, and the spirit descended on him like a dove. At the birth of the Christian church, in Acts the heavens were opened once again as the sound of a mighty rushing wind came down from heaven upon the disciples. Stephen, as he was being stoned, looked into an open heaven to see the Son of Man at the right hand of God. Peter, later in Acts, was praying when he saw the heavens opened and a great sheep full of unclean food was lowered down towards him. In the book of Revelation, we see heaven opened opened a number of times, often in judgment. But now we can have, have confidence that the heavens are opened permanently to us with Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, being the ladder, being the mediator, being the go-between between us and God. For the Word was made flesh to tear down the barrier between God and man. We can now approach the throne of grace with confidence 
because our great high priest, the Son of Man, has gone before us to open the way. And he has sent his angels as ministering spirits. It tells us in Hebrews 1.14, ministering spirits who serve God and are sent by him to help those who are to receive salvation. As the angels ministered to Jesus after his temptation, as they ministered to him in the garden before his arrest, so they minister to us also. When you read of Jesus calling himself the Son of Man, don't just gloss over it. For it's meant to remind us of at least seven things. Firstly, it should remind us that Jesus Christ was truly man. He wasn't an apparition. He wasn't God pretending to be a man, but he was fully and genuinely human. He was the perfect representation of humanity, of what we are meant to be. Secondly, Jesus Christ had authority on earth because he was God. The Pharisees knew full well that when Jesus told the paralytic man that his sins were forgiven, that he was also claiming to be God. That's why they wanted to kill him. Blasphemy. should also remind us that Jesus Christ came to serve, to seek and to save that which was lost. We should be reminded, fourthly, that Jesus Christ would be persecuted, abused, rejected and ultimately killed in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. The whole of the Old Testament speaks of Jesus. Jesus Christ would defeat death. He would rise from the death, from the dead, and he would take his rightful place as ruler of all creation. Sixthly, Jesus Christ will return for his people, his church, his bride, to take them to be with him for eternity, free from sin, free from pain, free from suffering, free from death forevermore, to take them to that great wedding feast of the Lamb. And seventh, Jesus Christ will one day judge all humanity in righteousness and he will deliver justice to all. In light of the fact that the Son of Man is coming back to judge every person, including you, where do you stand in relation to him? Are you one of those who are looking forward to his return, to being rescued, to being taken to him, with him, to eternal peace and rest and joy. For if you have put your trust in him, you have nothing to fear. Or are you one who will one day face the full wrath of God? The full wrath of God for your rebellion and rejection of him. I hope and pray that none of you fall into that category. But if you do, today is the day to repent. Today is the right time to turn to the Son of Man in repentance, acknowledging your sin and rebellion and trusting in him for your salvation. For he still has authority to forgive sin. If you do that, you too will have nothing to fear when the Son of Man returns. Rather, it will be a time of great joy. It is something that every believer can look forward to with excitement. Make no mistake, he is coming back. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, it says in First Thessalonians, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds 
to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. I hope these words have been an encouragement to you. I hope as you read the Gospels and see Jesus referring to himself time and time and time again as the Son of Man, that's an encouragement to you. I hope it's a cause for you to lift up your voice, your heart in worship of this Son of Man. Thank you, Lord, that every word of Scripture reveals something more about you. I pray, Lord, that everyone who is here today, everyone who may hear this message in the future, would value you more, would appreciate you more, would worship you more in spirit and in truth. Lord, we look forward with expectation and hope for the day when you return as Son of Man, when every eye will see you, including the eyes of your enemies. We look forward to the day when you will bring this present age to an end and to execute your righteous judgment to usher in an eternal age to come. We look forward to spending eternity in your presence, Son of Man, our Lord and our God, to your glory and in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.